The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have uh, a guest who I also consider a friend and colleague. I've gotten to know him over the years, Brian Alexander. Brian is a respected futurist and researcher and writer and speaker, consultant, teacher. I took that right off of his website. Um, and yet, when I say respected, please know that this is not a filler word when talking about Brian. Brian has a way of being truly present with people. He embodies humility, graciousness, even as his words flow from a deep well of knowledge and wisdom, he still brings those words with a, a measure of humility that that's um, really respectable. And um, you know those people who uh, somehow manage to avoid the drama while not shying away from the tough topics and conversations? I think that's Brian. And I think that's part of why he's gained a lot of respect in higher education. Brian's currently a senior scholar at Georgetown University, teaches graduate seminars in their learning design and technology program. He's founder and host of the Future Trends Forum, an ongoing participatory open video conversation about the future of higher education. He's also a prolific writer, uh, and I'm looking forward to speaking with him today about his newest book, Academia Next, The Future of Higher Education. Now, more impressive than any of the things I just mentioned, Brian speaks, as you will soon hear, with fewer disfluencies than anyone that I've ever met. In fact, he may well have missed his calling as a late-night radio show host. Brian, welcome. <laughs> well, um, I have to say, first of all, thank you so much. That is uh, one of the kindest introductions I've had the pleasure to experience. And uh, second, you, you've really set me up to be as careful a speaker as possible now. <laughs> That's I, right. <laughs> I can't risk any disfluencies. I can't do any, uh, or, <laughs> as you know, or uh, coughing. Uh, so That's right. uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's great to catch up with you because I've been a big fan of your work in the Moonshot EDU podcast and also with your current stellar work uh, turning around a fantastic Vermont college. So it's great to connect with you again. Thanks. We'll do our best, and we're doing our best. Now, I have to share something here. I have one beef with you, Brian. Um, when I stepped into my new role as president of Goddard College in late 2018, Brian was one of my first guests on campus. He and his wife came over. Brian, as a, a Vermonter at the time, um, made the 100-mile trek on foot across the mountains to visit <laughs> me in Vermont, um, and we had a great conversation. I, I was so excited excited to have a familiar face in Vermont. And then he promptly moved out of the state when I arrived. So I still take that personally, Brian. Um, and I'm going to try to bracket those emotions for this interview. It was all you. I would have stayed. <laughs> it's like Scooby-Doo. I would have stayed if it wasn't for you, you meddling kid. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, we moved to the uh, D.C. area, and that's uh, an enormous, enormous change. We feel kind of like Soviet immigrants in the 1970s. And going from, uh, we, we lived on top of a mountain in Vermont. We were uh, especially remote. We were homesteading about half off the grid. We were raising goats and chickens. We were heating with firewood, most of which we logged ourselves. And we went from that to uh, the middle of one of the world's metropolises. So we are constantly surprised. It's been a year and we are still 
being wrong-footed and being surprised and learning like mad. Uh, it's been a huge, uh, for me and for my family, professionally, this has been a huge step up. It's really uh, helped us connect with our professional networks, and it's, of course, led to all kinds of creature comforts. So we can go to movie theaters. Uh, we don't lose power every three weeks, and we have spectacular broadband. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. But you don't. Uh, I mean, you you were known previously as the axe wielding futurist. I'm assuming that doesn't go over well in D.C. Well, it can among Republicans. <laughs> but I also I've I've brought all of my axes here. Um, I, I only have three, but uh, but they each has a different purpose. And a, a nice family, uh, just about half a mile away, had a bunch of wood that they uh, harvested from uh, a storm. And they needed someone to split it. So I stomped over across town with my axe, which was a good way to meet people, and uh, chopped up a whole bunch of wood for them. It was very, very satisfying. And I think they were a bit terrified at first to see this bearded man waving an axe, uh, but the result was very good and it was very satisfying. I do miss uh, so many things about Vermont. I miss uh, fine people like yourself. I miss the uh, immediate immersion in nature. I miss the... Uh, what I think of is the is the really extraordinary and quirky democratic lowercase d democratic politics of Vermont. The listeners, you know, should know that the state is one of the few spots in the United States that still has small town governance. Uh, there's an annual town meeting where small towns decide about 50 percent of their fate, everything from uh, school board budgets to how to allocate funds to repair bridges and and ditches, and it's. Uh, it's a it's a truly extraordinary place. It's it's given us people like um, Bill McKibben and Bernie Sanders. Uh, so I do miss it. And I, I hope to come back and visit repeatedly. Yeah, that's great. In fact, I learned uh, this. It was a sort of shock to me that there's actually something called Town Hall Day. It's an actual vacation day in in Vermont for people to take off and participate in their town hall meetings. It is. It's a. It it, it can be extraordinarily boring and tedious. Um, because it's, it's the reality of, of very, very practical hands-on politics. And if you have a bunch of people who are from all walks of life, uh, unemployed people, hairdressers, shop owners, truck drivers, talking about the minute details of the financial support for school teachers' insurance budgets, uh, or just what kind of grant is going to be necessary in order to repair this one bridge, uh, or political arguments that run back decades, Yet it's, I think, it's, it's so heartening and inspiring to see that kind of level of participation, of engagement, and productivity, because these all work. People settle. They figure out what they're going to do, and they proceed. And it's, uh, when I see a CNN virtual town hall meeting, I, I'm, I'm truly disdainful, because it has nothing at all in common with that. Now, my children have found the town hall meetings Utterly boring and horrible, <laughs> but but I think I think as adults, they're going to look back and realize what uh, what extraordinary thing they had to experience. And that's just that's just one part of it. I, I don't think I miss thirty below degree temperatures. I still am glad I experienced them, though. I, I, it makes me stronger as a human being. Sure, sure. Well, maybe that's an interesting lead-in. This might be a deeper question than one would typically ask as as an introductory question, but is the future of higher education more like life on top of that mountain in Vermont, or is it more like life in D.C.? I'm afraid the answer is yes, in that, <laughs> in that we are experiencing higher education in the United States in the middle of uh, 
a deepening uh, and very, very intractable crisis under enormous pressures. And I think we'll see more than a few colleges and universities be under that kind of uh, existential pressure. We'll, I mean, we've already seen a series of colleges and universities in the Midwest the United States close or merge or attempt to merge. And I think the pressure is on for quite a few more than that. And the pressures are, in my book, I dive into these in detail. Uh, one of them is demographic, and it's often good news, demographics. I and mean, we decided that uh, we would produce fewer children and we would live longer, which is in many ways a triumph. I mean, we've, we've added something like 30 years to our lifespan in the past 50 years. Uh, we have almost abolished teen pregnancy. And you think about our lifespans being longer and longer. Now, yes, the past two years, uh, American lifespans have actually ticked backward a bit. But where they are, t- where they tick backward too, is still far in advance of where we were, say, in the middle of the 20th century. And these are these are things that education can claim a lot of credit for, because one of the reasons for these is the development of these trends, is the development of medical science, uh, the development of public health. But also, we know that the more education women get, the longer they um, the longer they live, but also the fewer children they have, and the more choices, the more control they have over the reproduction. So in many ways, education has helped change the very fundamental nature of uh, human society. And now that may come back to bite us in a few ways because we have fewer and fewer 18-year-olds. And that number is going to drop off a cliff in about four years. Um, The great um, Carleton College economist uh, Nathan Graw has a wonderful book on uh, demographics and higher education where he establishes pretty clearly that in 2008, our birth rate just plummeted now, because of the financial crash. Right? I mean, nobody wanted to have kids when the uh, financial sector just blown up. So there's a big pit of uh, absent children, and it's working its way through time. So if you just do the math, if you go you know, 2008 plus 18, that's when we're facing the demographic cliff in higher ed. Uh, K-12 has already experienced this. So if you think of that as a pipeline feeding us traditional age students, the pipeline has narrowed quite a bit. And this has all kinds of implications. Institutions that serve traditionally young undergraduates are now going to be competing with each other ever more fiercely. Institutions that depend on tuition for revenue, i.e. more than 90% of them, uh, are going to be struggling to keep their revenue going. Meanwhile, the other end, we have uh, growing numbers of seniors. And that's really a whole field that hasn't, hasn't really been taken as seriously as it should. Um, last year, there were two stories that just I thought were fantastic stories about this. Uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, there's an NBC story that people who are 65 and older could take credit-bearing classes there, and even towards degrees, uh, for a cost of something like $8 a credit hour. It was a fantastic, fantastic thing. Uh, the policy dates back from the 1930s. And it's really a great way for seniors to develop and, and reskill. And some of them have to reskill because some of them are still working. And the story was very heartwarming because it showed lots of seniors saying, yeah, I get to study French or biology in the that's fantastic. Uh, now, the story backfired because there are people who were not elders uh, who were very upset at that price point uh, since they were going into debt uh, at a much higher price point to take the same classes. But that's one, that's one option we have, a kind of social service, that kind of public good for seniors. Meanwhile, Arizona State University would grow up ground on a, a residence hall for uh, retirees, and it was quite the opposite. It was very, very expensive, the uh, I mean, partly it's Arizona real estate, but also they, I think they really, really uh, sift it out for very high-end families. And it's a, it, it's a great thing. These, uh, these retirees get to live in the storm. 
uh, in the middle of campus at ISU. And so they can take classes for free. They can become docents at museums. They can soak up external speakers and movies. So if you're worried about cognitive decline, for example, this is a great way to keep your memory fresh. If you just want to keep learning, what a fantastic thing. I mean, these are, these are two stories. There are many others, many other ways in which higher education can engage uh, seniors. Meanwhile, the whole sector, I think, has to pivot to more, um, more carefully support uh, and recruit students who are adults, the whole range from 22 to 65. I mean, so that, that demographic pressure is one that not all colleges and universities can face equally. Uh, a lot of our media attention is given to the very, very elite, very wealthy schools, you know, like the Harvard and Stanford. But if you think about state schools, if you think about second tier and below uh, private uh, baccalaureate institutions, and if they're located in areas where the local or regional demographics are dropping, such as the Midwest and the Northeast of the Czechs and the South, then it really becomes difficult for them to survive. So they may find themselves alone in the dark in a, in a whistling wind, the very cold temperature on top of the mountain. Meanwhile, we have so many other ways to serve students now. Uh, we have so many ways to connect with students from online learning to project-based learning to all the wonderful pedagogical, positive affordances of digital uh, teaching and learning that I think we have uh, all kinds of great ways to connect, in which case we have universities and colleges that are really in that uh, at Goldilocks zone. Yeah. You know, you know, you note in your book that it's vital to look at the sector as a whole. And many conversations in media sometimes seem to think of colleges and universities as a sort of singular entity. Right. Uh, but they're really, they're really looking at this narrow, uh, right out of high school student population mm -hmm. oftentimes. And there's so much diversity in American uh, higher education. How do we talk about the future of higher education in light of so much diversity? Because to me, it sometimes feels a bit like talking about the future of transportation devices versus talking mm -hmm. about bikes, cars, trains, right. planes, boats, and drones. They certainly right. have things in common, but they're so different that uh, a meaningful conversation would seem to call for, at a minimum, a distinction between these different forms. I agree completely. And uh, I think, I think that conversation is that kind of experiences that kind of artificial compression for a few reasons. One is it's, um, it's daunting I mean, for listeners who haven't looked into this. Um, American higher education has about 4,500 institutions, uh, which is extraordinary. Um, it's a really high number. It's only like 20% of the world's total. And the diversity is just astonishing. We have research one universities, we have community colleges, we have deeply religious schools from just hundreds of sects. Uh, we have very narrowly focused uh, campuses on, say, specific arts. We have general universities that try to cover as much as possible. Uh, size varies from schools that have barely 100 students to schools that have 40,000. Uh, we have public, we have private. I mean, it's really amazing. And uh, it's kind of unusual. Most most nations don't have this kind of diversity, um, and it's even it's even trickier than this too, Bernard, because we have um, a lack of centralization. Many nations have something like a national system. They even have a national university, which America's never had. Uh, we have uh, about two thirds of higher ed is public, but those are state universities and colleges, and those are run by fifty different states, each with different policies. And funding for those has dropped over the past forty years. So in many ways, those are more independent. Then about a third of higher ed is actually private. 
So you have all these different colleges and universities going their own way. So I, I think the sheer size of it is daunting, which is which is why, among other things, I had to write a book about this rather than an article or a column, uh, because it is that that large. But I think the other thing is that we're all interested, we're all biased in different ways by our experience. I mean, that is, if you if you are a member of the media, you may have gone to a school in the liberal arts tradition or, say, a public flagship or Research One University, and that shapes your understanding. Or you want your children to go to those schools, so you're going to focus on what Stanford says about their students uh, or what a professor at Yale says about their students. On top of that, I think there's also the problem that um, really we want to tell a story and stories need to have characters, and you can make individual campuses characters. But once you have more than 4,000 characters, and even the Russian novels don't have that. Uh, so I, I think it becomes a shift from uh, story to statistics. And one of the reasons I wrote this as a futurist is that the futurist field is very, very capable of handling such grand-scale issues and such grand-scale problems. Uh, so that's what we did in this book. Um, I really turned this into a, a full-ranging uh, examination of the whole sector. And it's just the United States. I, I had to narrow this down. Uh, I involved the United States in the world throughout the book, looking at everything from competition over AI development with China to some campuses opening branch campuses in other parts of the world to changes in international student enrollment. But just focusing on the U.S. really did take a kind of systematic level, sector-wide approach. Yeah, it's it's a real gift. Um, the uh, I think last time when I was on a, a, a when I was a guest on your show, one of the things I was particularly interested in at the time, and I've had to set some of that research aside because I have a little task right now that's keeping me busy, and uh, and yet I, I was very interested in what I had the term I had sort of coined outsider higher education uh, that. Uh, that there's, I would argue that there are those 4,500 institutions, but there are actually another 15 to 20,000 that aren't even considered colleges, but they're doing the kind of work that colleges have done in the past. Um, and that adds a, even another level of complexity to the conversation. It really can. And then, and, but I would say you're just getting started if you think about informal education. Right. Uh, my son and I just went and saw the new movie, 1917. Which I'm happy to talk about, actually. But I'm, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm I, I have a history degree and uh, a lifelong history buff, so for me this is fascinating. But I'm trying to imagine, say, a 16 year old who doesn't know that World War One happened, and they see this film and they get very interested and excited because it's a very engaging film. Uh, so they, on the way out of the theater, they whip out their phone and they start googling around. Well, what was the Hindenburg Line? What was the Western Front? Um, so they hit different web pages. They look at Wikipedia. They grab. YouTube videos, and suddenly they're working their way through a secondary or post-secondary curriculum. Now, they can stop once they get bored by it or dumped it, uh, but that kind of informal education is starting to happen. To circle back to your, um, your points about uh, the homestay my wife and I did, um, we had a terrible internet connection. I mean, that's what, one of the real dilemmas facing the United States, is that rural broadband, terrible. But when we could get online... Um, we were able to learn about uh, what we were doing. So problems of milking goats. Um, I actually studied a, a medieval German wood stacking technique, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, questions of uh, what you can plant at certain microclimates and what times of the year. 
And we learned, again, informally, a great deal through the internet. In some ways, that's a, a complements higher education. Um, you know, if I'm a student in your class and um, I, I want to learn more about something, I can ask you, but I can also go online. But to an extent, it may be competition down the road. You know, why should I pay this much money to study this much when I can do this much online for free and so on? Uh, so I, I, I think I think the, the problem is is really really enormous. But again, I I think this is a terrific thing. I believe that right now is one of the hardest times in the past hundred years to be an American university or college. But it is also perhaps the best time in the past century to be a learner, because you have for the former the stresses are just so great, but for the latter the opportunities are immense. Yeah. Yeah, and I I am quite comfortable with change, so I, I find this exhilarating. I'm in uh, I'm in one of the more challenging kind of contexts as a uh, trying to be part of a, a rather massive uh, academic turnaround, and and yet t- to me it's on most days incredibly exhilarating and exciting. I still resonate with what you're saying that this is one of the most exciting times to be in high, higher education that, that I could think of. It is exciting. I agree. Um, but I can probe that uh, uh, that sadness too, uh, just just because it's important. We can learn from it. For example, um, a lot of institutions, not all, um, and maybe not even the majority, um, pride themselves on their traditional nature. Um, you go to a campus because it has a certain reputation, a cachet built over time. The architecture often reflects that. You know, say Georgian architecture. You know, trying to have uh, trying to imitate a vision of Europe, um, which is often how we build parts of American education. And people want traditions. The traditions may be sports-based. They may be based in the Greek system. They may be uh, echoes of great names. I mean, you go to Princeton, and Woodrow Wilson was the president there. Um, Do you have, or do you have, um, you know, how do you change that kind of tradition, especially if if your board or your alumni are, are very intense about uh, if you're if you're a public institution, it's a little different. But campuses, I'm sorry, states really pride themselves on uh, the power of their of their great research universities. And even though we are in some ways in an age that people call it intellectual, I mean, agree with that. But the, the value of public classroom institutions is very great, and states want to celebrate that. But it's hard to you know, it's hard to mess with that kind of uh, power. But also, I think, on an individual basis, I think many people get into academia out of trust. You know, we believe that academia is the place that we're going to be safe. If we're going to research and teach math for 60 years, academia is the best place to do it. We'll have some kind of protection. If we're going to be a librarian, being an academic librarian gives you certain degrees of protection, if you're a faculty member or not. And we trust academic institutions to be there. And... In this moment of crisis, it's upsetting that that trust might not be fully merited. And that's, that's very upsetting. Whenever I go across the United States, I hear anxieties from everybody on campus, from presidents to provosts to trustees to faculty members to custodians of technologists and librarians. And this is a very, very anxious time for American area. Yeah. And uh, certainly the, the anxiety and, uh, there's a measure of instability. I I love the work of David Labory and his uh, his book, The Perfect Mess: Unlikely Ascendancy mm, of American yeah. Higher Education. I reference it as many times as I can because I love the historical perspective that he puts on this. That this kind of instability is not 
unknown in our history. Yeah, quite true. Uh, there's a, a very, very interesting book. I can dig up a citation for you if you want about um, American public higher education in the 1880s, 1890s during the uh, populist movement um, and uh, discussing what happened in several states when populist parties won majorities and were able to reshape higher education. And, you know, that if we talk about a populist moment now, um, it, it kind of pales in comparison to when you actually had a capital P populist party that, you know, has very specific goals, contradicting goals of other parties, and actually got things done. And it's really interesting to see, um, you know, how that played out. Um, yeah, our history is, is uh, in higher ed, is one that contains a bit of chaos. I mean, think about the land-grant institutions. They were spun out during the Civil War, which just still boggles my mind. You know, in the middle of the Civil War, hey, let's think about expanding public higher education. Wow. I mean, if yeah. you go through, you know, parts of, uh, parts of the South, I mean, colleges after colleges shut down. I think their students were all at war, or the campuses were occupied. Um, but instead, at the same time, a Vermont senator now uh, said, well, why don't we just expand higher education? Um, yeah, Americans are very, very inventive this way. We're very, we're very creative. We, uh, we like the chaos. But our institutions also embrace our forms of liberty. You, know, you can see this even in uh, campuses that were really expanded uh, after the 1960s when you see that. I think glorious 1970s architecture, you know, the glass and the brutal <laughs> discovery. Uh, but again, that's, that's, that's meant to, uh, occupy, to show a certain time. And it, it, so it's, it's tricky to mess with that. And you can see this when we have controversies over credentials. You know, a diploma is, a, is a, almost a sacred artifact. I don't even think it's you know, just simply our mind. But to mess with that, to say, all right, what if we have micro-credentials? What if we back block, you know, diplomas of blockchain? That's still kind of um, like, like the great film network has a wonderful scene. Where you, have fun, you have meddled with the fundamental structures of the universe. Um, get that kind of vibe from touching uh, these things in higher ed. But we have to. This is, this is a time of, of so much, much of stress, but potential. And, uh, we have to re envision and rethink where we're going. I hope my book gives people ways of doing that. Yeah, let's and let's dive into that too. By the way, uh, there's a there's a great book, and I'm not thinking of the title right now. It's a, a K-12 book, and it was self-published, so it didn't get a lot of attention, but it had Ooh. some incredible metaphors in it. And one of them was about ch- uh, affecting change and leading innovation in K-12 education. And they used the metaphor of load-bearing walls. That if you're mm-hmm. remodeling a house or a yeah. building. Be careful of the load-bearing walls. You just don't go about uh, knocking these over uh, because the roof will fall in on you. And one of the the flaws of of uh, uh, wild uh, innovation in education is that people don't think about which of these policies and practices and values and beliefs and traditions are load-bearing walls and which are not. And uh, so there's there's obviously a, a long collection of stories of uh, successes and failures based upon uh, that concept. But I want to dive into the um, the book. You, you do a lot of wonderful description and give people a sense of possibility. Um, I... I'm always particularly interested when people step out and they're willing to engage in some forecasting, which you do. And so I'd like to talk about that part. Um, what are some of the forecasts in the book about which you are most confident? Things that that, uh, sure. that are likely to happen in the relatively near future. Well, let me just explain for readers who haven't had a chance to look at this. The, the first half of the book uh, is an examination of trends that are reshaping higher ed. And these trends vary from 
developments in technology, to education technology, to policy, enrollment, demographics. So the first half of the book is very, um, it's load-bearing uh, in the sense that it's, it's very freighted with evidence. Um, that it looks at the present day to find, uh, to establish these different trends. And then the second half of the book works with those trends to develop forecasts. So uh, one chapter, we just do extrapolations where we take a look at what if these trends continue. So, for example, what happens if the declining enrollments in the arts and humanities and the rising enrollments in the sciences with these persist? And that's one that I, I think will continue for some time. Uh, and we, right now, the humanities are in a pretty bad crisis spot. Academics are not doing a good job of making a case for the humanities. Uh, they're... Uh, if you think about the, what, the, what the academic humanities study, you know, cultural artifacts, this is a great time. Culture is having a huge renaissance in a lot of ways. Everything from the movies and television, to computer games and art. I mean, that's fantastic. But academia is studying this not so well. Enrollments for, uh, for the humanities, especially history, have been dropping like a stone for the past decade. And they weren't healthy before that. Meanwhile, the, a lot of STEM fields, especially life sciences and computer science, uh, are doing great. We think about fields everything from uh, thoracic surgery to radiology to hospital administration to cybersecurity. These fields are just uh, minting people like crazy. And so I, I think we'll keep seeing that. And it's, it's hard for some campuses to grapple with this, in part because they already have pre-existing faculty in a lot of fields, in part because they have commitments to try to provide a kind of universal university-like experience. So I think that's one that I would like that we can come back to. Uh, I also developed a few different scenarios. You know, a scenario in the future's world is uh, a story about a potential future that's shaped by the strong impact of one or two trends. So, for example, uh, one of my scenarios is based on healthcare becoming the dominant industry in the United States and how that changes higher education. And to answer your question, that's one that I'm pretty confident in. The, the reason for this is that, and especially for foreign uh, listeners, the United States healthcare has an unusual financing system, whether financed privately and by employers rather than through the government. And one side effect of that is that healthcare is more expensive than it is anywhere else. It also delivers worse outcomes, and better than in some countries in the world, but still worse compared to our peers. And it is also enormously complicated, and that complexity is one of the reasons for its cost. Where we have many, many people, we have a whole industry, the healthcare, the health insurance industry, devoted to maintaining this complexity. And on top of that, uh, as America ages, statistically speaking, the older you are, the more healthcare you consume, it seems likely that healthcare will just keep growing into an industry. And for what that means for higher education is pretty interesting. It means that we can keep expanding our offerings for the full range of allied health. I mean, everything from, as I mentioned before, say, uh, surgery to psychology to computer science for maintaining medical records. Uh, so I think that's one that's really not going to go away. I mean, even if, let's just say hypothetically, we elect the President Warren, and she's accompanied by a supportive Democratic majority in both houses, it's going to take years for her to be able to potentially influence the right Medicare for all. And if that happens, it's going to take years for that to have an impact. And uh, I'm kind of skeptical of the political possibilities of that in the short and medium term. But in the meantime, I think higher education gets to um, enjoy that expansion uh, in a lot of ways. Another uh, forecast that I made is one that I published um, some years ago, and uh, it's one that's uh, sadly in many ways 
been borne out, uh, which is what I call peak higher education. And my, my theory there, when I first published this, was that at some point we would kind of max out demand uh, for higher education in the United States. And so if you go back a century or so ago, higher education was for a very small number of Americans. But over the 20th century, year by year, decade by decade, we decided that more and more people needed to have more and more post-secondary experience. And now as a nation, we're very committed to that. We think as many Americans as possible should have as much college and university experience as they possibly can. And we're deeply committed to that uh, in many ways, especially symbolically and culturally. And that's one of the reasons why in higher education now, a lot of institutions are struggling to better support first-generation college students. Students whose parents went to college, we've maxed that out already. We've got those people. But students whose parents did not go to school, who may be poor, who may lack the social capital of navigating university bureaucracy, in many ways we're struggling with them. But at the same time, we have other things that may keep us away from higher education. I mentioned that the financing of healthcare is unique in the United States. Our financing of higher education is also pretty unusual um, in that we believe in financializing. Um, support for higher education will go through student debt. As your listeners probably know that student debt in the United States is $1.6 trillion. A lot of students by grad school, but not all. It's largely held by women more than men. Uh, black and Latino um, people bear more amount of that than white people do. Uh, it's a really uh, it's a vast problem right now uh, in many, many ways. And that is also one that terrifies people. Uh, it's become uh, kind of an albatross from the neck of higher education. And it can be overblown. Uh, to go back to the media again, uh, we have a lot of media stories about you know, the barista with $60,000 in debt. Uh, last year, the Wall Street Journal did a piece about a dentist who had a million dollars in student debt. And these are outliers. I mean, the median debt is closer to 30000 About one-third of students graduate without any debt at all. But it is a terrifying prospect that can keep people away. So when I first published this idea, I thought, maybe maybe the worm will turn. Maybe the bubble will pop. Maybe we'll stop going to higher education with great numbers. And that's come true. Uh, Starting in 2012, the total number of students enrolled in American higher education has gone down every single semester. We're down about 8%. And that's really, really been felt hardest by the for-profit sector. The whole profit sector is really just hemorrhage members like men. A lot of reasons, including uh, bad publicity, often merited. Community colleges have dropped tons of students because, in part, community colleges' enrollment is usually tied to unemployment. Higher the unemployment, the more students go to community colleges. Lower the unemployment, the fewer students. And unemployment right now is historically breathtakingly low, 3.5%. It's incredibly low, so community colleges are really low. But also baccalaureates, master's institutions. And not all of them, but overall as a sector, they've seen their enrollments plateau or decline a little bit. So it's possible we're on the downside of uh, peak higher education, um, which is not a good place to be. Uh, it means that we're going to see more and more institutions struggle, suffer, close, merge, mutate in ways that might not succeed. And so that's one forecast that uh, I'm afraid I have some. On the more positive side, uh, one of my scenarios is called the Renaissance, and, and it's based on this idea that historically, whenever humans invent a new communications technology, we get creative with it. We immediately figure out how to tell stories with it. Uh, we make new forms of art with it. And we've done this with everything from radio to long playing records to movies to printed books to printed magazines and now to digital technology. 
if, if you look at the world right now from one particular angle, set aside the, the great stresses and threats just, just for a minute. Don't, don't think about the rise of authoritarianism or uh, the horrible, horrible epic spectacle of, of climate change, which we'll get to, I hope, today. Uh, but just think about the sheer productivity of, of human creativity. I mean, it's re- we're really, in the, I think, in the first generation of Renaissance. And go, go back. Go back to the 1960s. And if you wanted to be a creative, you would have had to join some capital-intensive industry. You know, if you wanted to write, you would have to work with a publisher. If you wanted to make music, you would have to work with a label. Uh, if you wanted to make a movie, my gosh, you'd have to work with you know, a studio. Same with television. But right now, the tools for storytelling, the tools for art making, have been incredibly democratized. Hence, the enormous growth of YouTube, which may be humanity's single largest cultural artifact right now. Hence the creation of, of podcasts. We're in the second wave of podcasting now. The whole thing started in 2004, 2005. And it's fantastic to see. And I, I think this impacts higher education in a lot of ways. One is that this is something for us to study, especially in the humanities and computer science. But it also helps shape how students and faculty and staff interact with each other. And this is a time where students can produce more. They can make more art. They can make more projects. Last year, two of my students uh, were fascinated in my classes by 3D printing, and they're also interested in publication and what publication meant in education. So they did this great project. They dove into the uh, archives of, of 3D models, and they found a good uh, plan for a 15th century printing press. So they printed this out using 3D printing, about a foot long, less than inches wide. Then they found um, out how to uh, produce a screw to press it down. And then they printed out some plates, and different plates were able to be attached to the bed at the middle of this. Uh, with a little bit of ink and a little bit of paper, you could print individual sheets. And one of the plates they printed was great for science fiction fans. It was uh, Clark's Law, which is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable for magic, which is for you. But one of the plates was a QR code. And so if you took that, scan it with your phone, it took you to a series of not just web pages they produced, but augmented reality web pages they produced. Exploring the idea of publication and education. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And so we have all that capacity now. And I think that's something we can really explore and embrace and, and uh, do a lot with. So, again, I don't mean that to be Pollyannish. Uh, if you look back to the historical Renaissance, that was a time marked by, by tyranny, by abuse, by plague, by war. Um, but I, I think it's important to pull out that, that particular spirit. You know, we can go, we can go still further. And one of the forecasts that I'm, I'm really, really interested in, if we look at a narrow branch of technology, is what some call mixed reality or extended reality. So just, just to explain uh, these, these awkward technical terms, in the 1990s, we invented the term virtual reality to describe the creation of the digital, digital content that immersive that we could see as uh, all-encompassing and you know, modeled some other experience. Uh, we also invented the term augmented reality, which is the flip side of that. That's when you take digital content and tie it to the physical world. So for virtual reality, think of examples where you put goggles on your head and you experience something really amazing. Augmented reality, think of, say, using Google Maps when you're walking around town or driving. Or think about games like Pokemon Go. If you combine these two uh, through technologies like HoloLens or Magic Leap, you have what Microsoft calls it mixed reality, what some call extended reality. So you can combine the digital and physical world in very creative ways. Uh, and this can be everything from 
if you're walking down the street of the city and you're curious about real estate values, whip out your phone and point the camera at different buildings and publicly available real estate information pops up over each building. Um, there are games, for example, where you can uh, fight robots in your living room. Uh, you put your goggles on and it maps out your living room space and you'll be staring through the goggles and you'll see your living room with furniture and then you'll see robots clamber over that furniture and you have to fight them off with a magic sword. So for education, I mean, try to imagine how far this can go. Uh, I, in the book, I mentioned one great example of uh, Worcester Polytech. Uh, there's the scientist there, Dimitri Korkin, who has this fantastic project uh, for visualizing um, biology where you get to look at a human brain or a protein through a lens through that, you're, that you've attached to your head, you know, through goggles or a headset. And that gets superimposed over the world around you. So you can kind of place this brain on your desk, for example, or over your bookshelf. And then you can control this visualization by gestures. You can reach out and spin the thing around, pinch it to zoom in and zoom out. And you can use your voice to command the visualization, ask it to pick out two particular nodes in a network. Um, you can go further than this. I mean, imagine having an augmented reality layer over your campus where people with the right technology, and the technology can be glasses, phones, tablets, laptops. They can see the history of each building by looking at it. They can see who's in each building, who has office hours, who's available. Then. You can imagine people walking across a campus uh, having virtual conversations with people who aren't physically located. You can imagine virtual art where people could build a gigantic uh, Diplodocus and have it walk across your campus, but not harm any buildings because it's all virtual and so on. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. We can call it you know, augmented campus. I'm fascinated by how that can really add layers and layers of uh, creativity and value to it. So those are those are a few of the forecasts. Yeah, it's uh, there. There's so many fascinating um, innovations and sort of creative expressions that are happening. I think for me, the question still resides: to what extent will the existing structures of higher education be places to incubate those or not? Like, will most of that happen within higher education, or are there going to be new forums um, outside of higher education where most of that that grows? Well, we've had, we haven't had a lot of success with external forms so far. We've had a lot of spectacular failures, but we can also point to some interesting developments. Uh, for example, some giant companies, Amazon, Walmart, have been investing in higher education, uh, not as venture capitalists, but in order to set up education for their staff and employees, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, that's a case of competing directly with us, if not partnering with us. Um, and that's something that I find very, very powerful and very interesting. It might not be that innovative at a pedagogical level, although I think it's interesting in terms of, say, structure. And I'm, I'm very conscious of your question and your concern about traditional institutions being innovative. I think they're innovative forces, but they're unusual. For example, a few years ago, uh, Ithaca SNR, fantastic outfit, did some research into public universities and they're looking for the innovativeness of faculty members. And what they found was that, generally speaking, adjunct faculty were more likely to be innovative than tenured faculty, which in a sense is counterintuitive. And you think that tenured faculty are the most powerful people on the campus usually. They have governance powers. They have tenure, right? They tend to have higher degrees of compensation. And since they have tenure, they can really develop relationships with support staff, and they are well-supported compared to anybody else. 
So they should really have the luxury, the freedom, the, the capacity to be the innovator. Whereas adjuncts are, well, let me do a little sidebar here. And one of the developments that's happened over the past generation of higher ed that's not really fully appreciated outside of it is that we've switched our professoriate to a point where the majority of uh, faculty in the United States are part-time attempts, which we call adjuncts, uh, which in Canada are called sessionals. Uh, we, this happened for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, we expanded higher education, but largely grew part-time positions, partly to save money. Uh, adjuncts are far cheaper than full-time faculty. And partly because Research One universities kept churning out numbers of PhDs well beyond the places in the market. But that's where we are right now. And so to close that sidebar for a second, you think that adjuncts would have, they have relatively little support from institutions. They aren't there for time. They tend not to have offices. They tend not to have staff. Um, you know, their office may be the local Starbucks. They, uh, their staff is usually themselves in a stapler or, uh, and they're not there full time. So why should they devote a lot of energy to innovating an institution that only has them for one class a year? Well, it turns out that tenured faculty lack a lot of the incentives uh, to do that kind of innovation. They have incentives for other things. Whereas adjuncts have to compete every month for a job. So if a campus says, yeah, we really support innovation, well, adjuncts will jump at it. Plus, I think being an adjunct, a lot of technologies really help your life. Uh, so, for example, cloud computing really helps if you don't have a dedicated web presence uh, hosted by an individual campus. If you're teaching at two, three, four, five, six different colleges and campuses, it makes a lot of sense to have your materials based in a central location hosted by whomever uh, rather than your campuses. Um, so I, I would look to adjuncts uh, for creativity right now. And I would also look to, again, the, the sheer variety of institutions is almost too much to take in. So if we have brilliant teaching on one campus, it's hard for the 4,000 plus others to realize that. So I've been tracking an interesting experiment. For example, Council for Independent Colleges uh, is a great, great group that works with a whole bunch of private colleges across the U.S., colleges and universities. And they did some groundbreaking work in inter-campus teaching. So this is when campuses exchange teaching and students online so they had this project for uh, upper-level humanities seminar. So not intro seminars, not intro to U.S. history, but a seminar on the Civil War, a seminar on Byzantine art, a seminar on one book of the Old Testament, for example. And these are seminars that would often usually win a couple of students on campus. They end up being something independent study. But the, the schools gathered in groups of about 13 or 14, and they agreed to exchange these seminars so one campus would offer an advanced Russian class, and students in the other colleges could take that class online. Meanwhile, students at the initial campus, the one of the Russian class, they could take that book of uh, Jeremiah seminar from one of the other member class uh, campuses, and so on. It was a great, great project because it expanded every participating college and university's curriculum a little bit. They had access to more of this great stuff. The faculty were excited because they got to teach their passion with larger classes. And they all got to learn more about teaching online, which is very, very different from teaching face-to-face. -face. I mean, that kind of innovation just, I find fascinating. And I think we'll see more and more of that.
That's pedagogical innovation. Really, really exciting. So much we can go into, and I really encourage people to check out the book. We're we're um, getting near to the end of our time, so I want to sort of switch directions for just a, maybe a few minutes, and we'll we'll kind of close out. Um, one that I think is really important for those higher education leaders or faculty members or people who care about their higher ed entity and they're sort of concerned about where we're going in all of this, you have a great um, uh, call in, in the text for um, what you call future oriented a future oriented mindset, a call for colleges to have a future oriented mindset. And I'm wondering if you could just just give a little glimpse of. Uh, what does that look like for a higher education institution to have a future-oriented mindset? That's a great question. Um, there are a lot of ways that you think about the future. And I've worked with just hundreds of colleges and universities as well as nonprofits, businesses, and governments about this question. And I'm fascinated by how they all do this. And I, I share what, you know, what works from the uh, profession of uh, futures. And so sometimes you get an individual on the campus who just has that peculiar instinct to look ahead to the future. And the campus will look to them to see what's new. And that's not really sustainable. Uh, it is a very liberal arts thing to do, uh, but it's something that uh, in practice people often follow. Another practice that I think is better is when you have institutional commitment to look ahead. Uh, and this can be a form of regular ad hoc meetings it can be the form of a committee or a team that meets within a sector. So uh, we've seen some uh, within IT groups or uh, library groups uh, that meet regularly and they just scan the future, trying to find what's coming up. And they look at all kinds of sources. Then some we have programs um, and that uh, are busy trying to figure out uh, where their campus might be going. And those programs might be uh, complete startups uh, from scratch. For example, at uh, Portland State University, uh, they have, under Laura Nissen's leadership, they have a really, really great ongoing project involving a lot of faculty. And it keeps, yeah, basically, it's a study group with strategic implications where they look at different developments that are shaping their future. So they look at everything from the future of professions and work to economics to pedagogy to technology, and they feed that into their strategic planning. And I think that's a really, really positive way to do this. And it's not easy. We're not really good at the future. Uh, Phil Tetlock has this really interesting book called The Super Forecasting, where he describes um, techniques he developed for doing short-term forecasting. They're very, very good. But he begins by saying, um, you know, we are lousy predicting everything uh, from sports outcomes to geopolitics to elections. I mean, the 2016 election, for example, in the United States is a good example of that, or Brexit. Uh, instances where the predictions are way off in the results. So we have to train ourselves to think the future can be different from the past. We have to use tools like scenarios, like environmental standards, how to do this. And we're also not alone, which is one of the great things. Uh, we can collaborate across institutions. It's hard for American academics. We, uh, we aren't very good at this, uh, but it's a very powerful thing to do, uh, to reach out and broaden your experience. So to have a community college team talk with a State school team talk with a research one team about what they're seeing in the future just makes your forecasting more intelligent and more flexible. And then there are groups that produce this kind of stuff professionally. The OCLC in library world did a series of environmental scans that were really, really useful for libraries. And on top of this, I think use the technology. Uh, I do tons of research through RSS feeds through Twitter, not just by soaking it up. I, I do that. But also, I push my results, my findings, and my questions out to the world. So I get feedback 
I, I ask I ask people in my networks questions. Sometimes they don't answer. It's okay. I keep working at it. But I get fascinated with you. I've been querying people, for example, about climate change and higher education. I've been surprised again and again by the responses I get. It makes my forecasting smarter, uh, richer. And I, I think that's something that we really, really should do more of. It, there are risks and dangers, of course, which we should be mindful of. But I think turning to the you know, digital world is a really powerful way to learn, much less using some emerging tools. There's a great British project called Shaping Tomorrow, which trains an AI to look at signals of the future. Uh, there's a lot of potential there. So I, I think those are a few things you can do with a future's mindset. One, one last note, read science fiction. Uh, that's, that's in many ways in the business of the future. And I think by reading science fiction, I mean, that includes watching movies or television shows, but that's a good way to expand your mind and get you thinking about where futures could be. No, oh, I love that one. That's great. If I could get uh, my leadership team reading some good classic Isaac Asimov or Roger Zelanzi, now that would make for an interesting professional development. It would. It really would. Uh, there's, um, and there's actually a body of science fiction, a very small one, but um, about education. Uh, Isaac Asimov has a fantastic novella called Profession, mm-hmm. which is, uh, uh, and there's several novels. Um, Werner Vinger has a book called Rainbow's End. Uh, which focuses on two things. Uh, universities going through a book scanning project and uh, people who have been cured of Alzheimer's but who now have to learn how to re-enter society and basically have to go through school again. Uh, Joan Slonczewski, uh, who's a fantastic novelist as well as a world-class biochemist, has a very entertaining novel um, called The High Frontier, which is about a liberal arts college in orbit over Ohio. There's, there's a lot of science fiction that's been thinking explicitly about education. But also just the very idea of science fiction is to open up the mind, that kind of creativity and that foresight. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're uh, right at the end of our time. So I want to ask one question about you and, and your work as we finish up here as well, Brian, which is, uh, since we're talking about academic next, uh, let's talk about Brian Alexander next. Um, what writing or research or other projects are on the horizon for you? What can we expect to see in the upcoming months and years? Well, the next coming months, uh, I'm continuing to teach at Georgetown. Uh, I'm also doing a book tour for Academia Next. So if you'd like me to uh, present virtually or physically at your institution, let me know. I'm also starting uh, to explore a new book project, which is about the next 80 years of higher education under the impact of climate change. So that's something that I'm working on. Uh, the Future Trends Forum is my weekly video conversation. It's an unusual thing. I'm the moderator. We always have a, a great guest, and a guest could be anything from a college president to an entrepreneur to a faculty member to a scholar to uh, a, um, a journalist or a critic. And we connect them with up to 250 people from around the world across higher education, and we have a freewheeling conversation. We've been doing this for almost four years, and uh, this is continuing to expand. And we get more and more people, which is very, very exciting. And uh, I've been getting ready to start producing my podcast uh, as soon as uh, I can claw free the time and stop fiddling with the background music. Uh, we'll have a, a podcast here. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. Well, we'll have to uh, please s- send anything over. We'll get some links and I can put them in the show notes and get people connected to your work who are not already. Brian, I always appreciate speaking with you and appreciate the work that you're doing. It's a real gift to higher education right now. It's much needed. It's really contributing to a much deeper and more, more meaningful conversation. So thank you. 
Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate this. I, and I'm, I'm amazed that you can conduct your excellent podcasting work while turning around an academic institution at the same time. You might have many talents, Bernard. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.